Russia's war on Ukraine rages on while the world awaits the arrival of an Iran nuclear deal 2.0. This week, we welcome France's ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne, to share Paris's perspective on these global events and discuss the safety and security of French Jewry amidst ever-growing threats of anti-Semitism. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, I know all eyes continue to be on Ukraine, but starting to break through the headlines this week is the potential for a new Iran nuclear deal. My views out there this past week in the New York Post, the National Review, for those who want to read them, put simply, the president promised us a longer and stronger deal on Iran, and it looks like we are going to a shorter and weaker deal Terrorism sanctions will be lifted while Iran plots to assassinate former U.S. officials, including John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Brian Hook, and others. Missile sanctions will be lifted while missiles proliferate the region to threaten U.S. allies. The old sunsets remain in place. Iran gets to keep its advanced nuclear centrifuges to always be ready to threaten us with nuclear extortion. We get no answers on undeclared nuclear sites and activities. Iran gets $100 billion off the bat. Jared, I'm working myself up here. How do you spin this as anything other than another foreign policy disaster? Well, the first thing, Rich, is that there is no deal yet, right? And until there's a deal announced, we don't know what it's actually going to look like in the in the final. And then we're going to have to have a reasoned conversation. But I'm not willing to start passing judgment on a deal that doesn't exist yet and doesn't you know go into detail about all the different points that you started to highlight. I'm sure with equal weight for both sides, and then we'll we'll, we'll discuss it. I would imagine we would be uh, interested in a special. Jewish Insider Limited Liability podcast all about the Iran deal. And so I think we just got to stay patient for a moment. Jared, you're like describing my dream come true finally. The Iran, <laughs> the Iran deal episode. I think you, no, might, listen, you I, might actually get it, Rich. I know. Well, we're I, unfortunately, I think we may soon. But all I know is we've done a lot of interviews with both sides of the aisle, members of Congress uh, over the past year plus. I remember an interview like the one we did with Representative Kathy Manning. Uh, freshman Democrat fr- from uh, North Carolina, and we asked. I asked about this question, and she said, "Listen, Secretary of State Tony Blinken is a smart guy. Uh, we've asked for a longer and stronger deal. Let's give them room. Let's see where they go. I'm not willing to to prejudge where it's happening." And I look at the letter that was signed by, I think, 70 or so members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, 70 Republicans, 70 Democrats last year. Jewish Insider covered it extensively. It said, Mr. President, here are all the deficiencies of the old deal. You need to go fix these. If they're not fixed, I want to know from a representative, Kathy Manning, I want to know from the 70 Democrats who signed that letter, what are you going to do now? That's a great question, and I think I think we'll find out. I think uh, we should not prejudge a deal that doesn't exist, and we should see what happens, and it's certainly going to be some interesting times on the Hill, and the Biden administration is going to have to answer for whatever deal that they come out of that room with. Fair enough. Jared, we do have a war ongoing uh, in Ukraine right now, uh, thanks to Vladimir Putin and uh, his aggression, and a lot of other uh, issues to cover, including Iran. Why don't we uh, go ahead and introduce our guest? I think that's a great idea. Philippe Etienne is the ambassador of France to the United States. He's previously held numerous posts within the Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs, notably including being ambassador to Romania, permanent representative to the European Union, ambassador to Germany, and most recently, diplomatic advisor to President Emmanuel Macron. Ambassador Etienne has held posts in Moscow, Belgrade, Bucharest, Bonn, Berlin, and Brussels. He speaks English, German, Spanish, Russian, and Romanian. Ambassador, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
it's a great uh, opportunity for me too. Ambassador, well, let's start with the state of the Franco-American relationship. In 2021, you were famously recalled by your government in response to the deal for the United States and others to build nuclear submarines for Australia and the cancellation of a contract for France to build similar but non-nuclear subs. In light of that, what is the state of the U.S.-France relationship today? Thank you for Starting with an easy question. <laughs> uh, I, I say that France and the United States are the closest of allies, but there's always some intrigue. I mean, it is not uh, that, uh, that such a difficult question. I just want to, considering your question, to remind you that the choice of having non-nuclear submarines built by us and Australia for Australia was an Australian choice, not a French choice, because our own submarines are nuclear powered. This is something always important. And, and the fact that uh, created this crisis was not only that this uh, AUKUS project has uh, led to stop with uh, this contract, which was, which was going well and which was being implemented in good conditions. Now we know this. But also, and, and not even the fact that we were absolutely not consulted, not informed uh, before the day of the announcement on, on September 15th. But in the substance, the fact that we, we it could have been quite possible to to involve us and to consulting with us uh, to to find solutions uh, because the result of this is that apparently Australia will wait many years more before receiving its uh, its new in that case nuclear powered submarine. So the question to to be answered by by the AUKUS participants is uh, how will they do? But your question was about how our French-American relations um, evolved since then. And uh, I said it is not a difficult question because we have indeed worked very hard on, the, on both sides to rebuild the trust. And I think we have succeeded uh, to a large extent. And considering what's happening now in the world, it's really important that we have uh, again um, rebuilt the trust between uh, important allies. We have uh, worked a lot on both sides uh, between the middle of September and the end of October. The end of October was a meeting in Rome between President Biden and President Macron. We adopted then in Rome, the two presidents adopted a declaration in Rome, which is really important. And if you read this declaration, you, you will see that one of the main topics which were discussed during these six weeks of intense consultations between the middle of September and the end of October was a theme of European defense. The fact that the U.S. welcomes a stronger, more capable European defense, complementary to NATO, as uh, something which would uh, strengthen our common security, uh, is today, if you, if you read this sentence, and it is not a one sentence, it is being developed in the Rome Declaration, takes quite a lot of importance, uh, relevance with what is happening now. And uh, it was not only important to, to rebuild trust as such, but also to engage after this crisis with the U.S. in a very, very substantial strategic dialogue and to, to share our views on uh, strategic outlooks on the Indo-Pacific, on European defense, also on the fight against terrorism in, uh, in Africa and a, a number of other strategic issues which have been discussed on this occasion. Ambassador, thank you for that. And that's very clarifying for me. I guess, 
Can I ask like sort of a follow-up on that, which is France was America's first ally, right? There would be no successful American war for independence without, without France and French assistance. But at several points during our history, we get into these sort of, uh, and I don't want to put a label on them, but like minor crises that the underlying bedrock of the relationship is there and is never going away. But several points throughout our history, these happen from time to time. Any thoughts or observations on why, why these happen from time to time? Maybe it's every 20 years or every 15 years? A good point. Uh, first, the starting point is important. France is the oldest ally of the United States. And right. together with the War of Independence and uh, the Statue of Liberty, I think we will never forget in France how the U.S. came to help us during the two world wars, which is absolutely essential for the survival of our democracy, of our sovereignty. We will never forget this. And this is an answer to your question. You said it in your question. There is a strong bedrock. We share the essential values and it has always been the case and it will be the case in the future. At the same time, indeed, we have had some other, across the whole history of the French-American relations, by the way, we had ups and downs. And I think that one of the reasons, which is a positive reason in a way, is that France is an ally of the United States which uh, uh, says what he thinks. We are a sincere. We have. We are an, a sincere and reliable ally when it comes to essentials, especially in uh, national security interest. When it's about our sec- national security, we are together. For instance, we fight against terrorists in the Levant, in uh, Africa, through the Sahel besides the Sahelian governments and peoples against terrorist groups. We engage our, our troops. We have lost lives. We have paid the price of blood in this fight against terrorism. The U.S. can rely on us. We are a reliable ally. But we are also a sincere ally. And it happens like in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. We tell exactly what we think. (laughs) And sometimes it creates some downs. But it's also uh, the source of ups because uh, I think it's, it's important for the U.S. to have such an ally. So we, we, we put a, a great importance and uh, whoever is in the governments in the two countries on this, uh, on this sincerity, on the independence of our views. And we think it's a plus for our alliance. And the last point, which is also a plus, which is uh, the fact that for us, in particular for our president now, but uh, for our country in general, the, the European Union being a political actor and not only a trade and economic partner is really important. I think this, again, can create sometimes, has created in the past some uh, misunderstanding, but now is being well understood by the U.S. also as a plus, as a strength, strengthening the European pillar of our alliance, transatlantic relationship, strengthens also the U.S., Mr. Ambassador, you talk about the frankness in our bilateral relationship, and it's a good segue to talk about uh, Iran, which is an issue uh, always hot, always in the press, it seems. It's still that way today, of course. Back in 2015, I I recall many of the stories of the French being among the strongest critics inside the room, pushing for a stronger and stronger deal that that ultimately became the JCPOA, the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Obviously, a different president at the time. But still, we saw President Macron came to the White House uh, back in 2018, before President Trump left the deal, laid out his multi-pillar approach for negotiating a new deal. And of course, implicit in that approach was that there were deficiencies. There are deficiencies in the JCPOA. 
Uh, I'd love to maybe start with just talking through with our listeners how France, uh, under President Macron, has viewed the JCPOA, its deficiencies, and how you would find leverage to improve the deal. Well, if our president in Washington in April 2018 asked President Trump not to leave the deal, it was because we were convinced that it was bad for our interests, for our collective interests. Because as you said, recalling what happened in 2015, France has always, and you could have started from the very beginning of this discussion with Tehran. The beginning of the discussion was made by European countries, the famous E3, UK, Germany, and France. We have always considered this deal as something important for a common interest, which is the fight against proliferation of nuclear weapons. And we thought back in 2018 that it was a mistake to leave the deal for the US. And what has been happening since then, I think, has justified our opinion. Because the maximum pressure policy has not worked. We think it has failed because the Iranians have been continuing their policy. They have themselves stopped to respect the deal. And in spite of the fact that the maximum pressure had effects, of course, it was not uh, something which didn't uh, bite, but it has not prevented them from uh, doing more and more, taking more and more dangerous decisions, including in the nuclear field. So this is the reason why we thought it was not a, a good decision. And this is the reason now why, together with the United Kingdom and the Germany, we have been working to, with this new administration we, we have now as partner in Washington to uh, come back to the deal. You, you mentioned the, what, what uh, which we said at the time, recognizing that there were other dimensions. We have, we have not been idle either, especially on the regional one. We, we have helped or supported the organization, for instance, in Baghdad of a very important conference on the sovereignty of Iraq with the neighbors, including Iran, Turkey, and uh, the Arab countries, the Gulf countries, which was successful. We have uh, really been working through these years for the, the sovereignty of Iraq, but also for the stability and security of the region. We have you know, a very close partnership, for instance, with some countries of this region, not only Iraq, but also the United Arab Emirates. Uh, our president has been, uh, has visited Saudi Arabia, the United Emirates, and um, and Qatar at the beginning of December. So we have been working on this uh, this dimension and to improve things. Ambassador, you mentioned France's commitment to international nonproliferation, obviously a shared priority between our governments. And I think one of the big concerns that emerged between 2015 and today, right, was the discovery by the Israeli Mossad of the nuclear archive in Iran, which has led in the last almost four years now to a long IAEA investigation, a safeguards investigation, potential NPT noncompliance investigation that has found f at least four previously unknown sites reportedly, three of those sites, uh, samples taken, uh, testing positive uranium particles. It's an open investigation, obviously. And I think one of the questions people have is, did the deal prematurely legitimize Iran's nuclear program, lift sanctions, without truly having a full accounting of its past and present activities. Is that a lesson to be learned from? Is it something that other countries in the world may see and say, you know, France, the United States, they take the NPT, they take safeguards seriously when they want to, not when they don't want to? Well, I think that 
you, you underline a very important dimension of this issue, which is the support we gave all the time to the International Atomic Agency from Vienna. And the, the lessons to be learned from one country to another, indeed, is something important. This is the reason why we could, we could come back to, to Ukraine, by the way, and, uh, or to go to Ukraine on this uh, field and to, to see what happens with, when a country accepts uh, disciplines and his neighbor invades the same country afterwards. There, also, people, countries are looking at that uh, very carefully, but this is more about the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which maybe we'll discuss later. But on this point of the uh, GCPOA, we have been supporting as friends, together with the US, of course, and the UK and Germany, all the time, the work made by the Agency of Vienna. And it is an essential part, of course, of the discussions. And we support it when they discuss with Iran. We have been always very clear on this. Ambassador, one of the, the questions I wanted to ask here, and it's it's sort of, a, I guess, a game of three-dimensional chess. We want to transition to Russia and Ukraine. One, one question before we go there. The United States and others say Russia is isolated, but then we see the Russians at the center of the Iran talks. The U.S., France, you're still there. We're still there at the table with the Russians. How can the world be ostracizing Russia on the one hand, isolating it, seizing yachts of oligarchs, but on the other hand, have them in the room in Vienna and trying to get the best deal possible? Russia has been, together with China, signatories of the GCPOA. So they are among the signatories. The, the ones who have really negotiated this are the Europeans, who have been the most active from the beginning to today. Uh, and the European Union as such as is uh, the coordinator of the negotiations. So we, we have to uh, consider this as it has been. And it is exactly like what I said. Now... We have also to consider how to handle each dossier in uh, according to its own uh, importance. We think it's really important to restore this agreement to fight against the proliferation of nuclear weapons. We consider it is the interest of um, all the signatories besides Iran, which doesn't prevent us from isolating Russia in the case on its invasion of uh, Ukraine because it's unacceptable and we have to fight for this. It goes, of course, uh, beyond the, and the invasion of a neighboring country, but uh, first we, we must also do it for the Ukrainian people. And we have uh, indeed uh, worked very hard so that, as you could see in the General Assembly of the United Nations, only four other countries supported Russia. And in the Human Rights Council in Geneva, on, only one country supported Russia. So it's a really important result. We have uh, got with uh, uh, a tremendous work, diplomatic work, which has been done all over the world in all, on all continents, and that we will continue. And Ambassador, before we do move uh, into Russia, Ukraine, I, I did have one last question on Iran. Back in 2018, we recall terrorist plot that was foiled uh, on French soil that the Iranians uh, were behind. You obviously have a vocal dissident community that uh, is quite active uh, inside France, and there's plenty of documented incidents in the past of MOIS, other Iranian terror-related incidents uh, on European soil, including on French soil. 
How concerned are you with Iran's sponsorship of terrorism today? And is that an issue that will need to be addressed in a continual fashion on a bilateral basis? We fight against terrorism and uh, terrorist threats whether, where, wherever the danger is coming from. And uh, we will continue. There will be uh, no change. We are fighting, as I said, with uh, the price of the, the life of our soldiers against uh, uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Sahel. But the fight against terrorism uh, will remain a, an absolute priority. And we think we, we should not consider that, especially the fight against these two organizations is, uh, is over. Excuse me, it's a more general answer, but thank you for asking that, because we, we must not forget the other things which threaten our security, in spite of the fact that now we are focused on this, uh, this war, this invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Ambassador, shifting gears a little bit to the Russia-Ukraine topic, it's it's been getting obviously a ton of coverage in the United States and around the world. And, and we know that you were posted earlier in your career in Moscow. The first question I have is, should the West impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine? And will it make any difference if we do? The question here is whether there is a possibility to impose a no-fly zone without changing the state of a belligerence. Uh, this is a question. I am not an expert, but the experts say that uh, to implement a no-fly zone means uh, to accept the risk of a f- direct a co- military confrontations between our armies and the Russian army. For the time being, we say we are not at war with Russia, but we support uh, the fight. We support in different ways, including by the delivery of defensive weapons and equipments to them, the fight of Ukraine and its people against the invasion. This is uh, the way we are handling this. And we support this fight also with sanctions such as we had never decided, both through their the rapidity of their adoption and uh, the extent, the scope of those sanctions. Though our sanctions against uh, not only the banks, but even against the Central Bank of Russia, have had an immediate crippling effect on the Russian economy, for instance. We have decided to react in this way and to try to take any possible argument from the propaganda which says that uh, the West is uh, a sort of already at war. No, absolutely not. And not on the contrary, we have proposed, you know, our president has been in conversation with the Russian president a number of times and still keeps in touch with uh, the president of Russia. And before this one, the latter decided to invade or started to invade uh, Ukraine, we, we had discussions to propose a substantial negotiation on security in Europe. So the Russian leadership cannot say that we did not propose a, a negotiation. And I think it is important to underline this and at the same time to be to have a, a very, very strong answer, uh, both to help the Ukrainian people and to isolate Russia and to decide really, really heavy sanctions to have effect to raise the price of this invasion. Just to quickly follow up on Jared's question, because I take your point on the no-fly zone. Uh, We've seen the president in our country as well give a similar response, which is simply, we're not going to be in a position where we threaten and then potentially 
get our bluff called to shoot down uh, a Russian fighter. We're not, we're, we will not, we, the West will not be the ones who start world war three, so to speak. Obviously from Putin's perspective, maybe he thinks we're already in world war three based on the sanctions, based on the pr- provision of lethal assistance, et cetera. But that that's different from what we believe the state of belligerence is, as you said, is there not though some sort of a middle ground uh, a different way forward. Thinking back to President Bush in 2008 sending the military airlift uh, to Tbilisi uh, to try to shut down the Georgia war. As far as a military-assisted humanitarian convoy uh, with uh, nations that wish to participate, the United States, France, Germany, others, that could simply drive across the border with assistance for people, humanitarian assistance, with military protection. And really, it's then on Vladimir Putin, if he wants to start World War III, because now there are combatants on the ground. There are people just not there to shoot Russia, but just to help make sure that there's secure provision of humanitarian assistance, but essentially providing a human shield where Russia can't start attacking and killing Americans or French soldiers. I don't know exactly what uh, what you propose because uh, once you um, you send uh, military equipments or uh, uh, servicemen or women uh, to to the country, it, it makes things different. But I agree with you on one point: the priority now is indeed to find the most efficient ways to protect the people. And this is the reason why we make now from this humanitarian dimension a clear priority with three or two or even three aspects. The first aspect and the most sensitive is the one you mentioned to allow for the people who, who are threatened to um, through corridors, for instance, to escape from the center of the cities. We are not only following the discussions which are taking place with, between the Ukrainians and the Russians, but we are discussing this and uh, we are pushing very strongly for this. It was, it, is, it was a main topic together with the protection of nuclear civil, civil nuclear infrastructures in Ukraine of the last discussion between President Macron and President Putin. So this is the most difficult issue because it is in the middle of the fight and it is a question you mentioned. But then there are one or two other issues which are, and, and I would add to the first dimension to bring relief to those who are still in more and more uh, encircled besieged cities. The two go together, allow civilians to, to walk out, to go out to some safe places and to bring in relief. The, the other dimensions, of course, you didn't mention them, but still mention them, which are really important, is to secure welcome of the refugees who leave Ukraine, hopefully temporarily, but with families. We are doing this. The European Union is doing a big, big effort. France is holding the presidency of the Council of the EU, as you know now. And they are, we are doing this across the EU with a fantastic um, performance by the people of, in po- and the, the, the authorities in Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, even Moldova outside the EU. And those refugees are already 1.5, but some forecasts, if the, the war, as we see that happening, unfortunately, is still worsening. We expect still more. It is a huge effort by, by our European countries, but not only the government, but the people are ready to do this. And these refugees will be accepted and, and welcome in all the 27 member states, including France. 
And the last, uh, the last dimension, which is not mentioned, which which is a, li- a little between the two, the two first one, is all the people of Ukraine who are displaced, who who had to leave their homes, but who are still in Ukraine. And here again, we speak I- IDPs, internally uh, displaced IDPs, persons. Yeah. We speak about millions, millions of Ukrainian citizens. So another thing we have to to handle is to 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 have humanitarian access humanitarian help aid coming to Ukraine, not only which is the most important, difficult aspect to into the, the cities which are under the bombing, the shelling of the Russian army, but also to all, all Ukraine to, to help these uh, IDPs. So you must consider the whole of this humanitarian dimension and don't forget after what happened in Zaporozhia, also the issue of the protection Respecting the sovereignty of Ukraine of the nuclear plants in Ukraine, including site in Chernobyl, which is also something which is both national security, an issue of security, but also, of course, humanitarian. If you imagine what what would be the effect of uh, something happening. Sorry, it's been a bit long, but. Uh, Ambassador, what do you think Vladimir Putin's endgame is? Uh, is it, as some people would say, or as my co-host would assert, a takeover of all of Eastern Europe, or will it stop with Ukraine and and some of what he calls as uh, disputed territories? I say that in, in quotes because we all know that they're not disputed by anybody other than Vladimir Putin. But what do you think Vladimir Putin's endgame is in Europe? Well, I don't know, actually. <laughs> this question is, is really uh, asked by everybody, and uh, everybody says, I don't know. But uh, I think that even if he has not launched his offensive yet in all of the territory, apparently what he wants is the, to control the whole of Ukraine. And not as there was maybe at the ID, at, at the beginning of the ID, he would, uh, he would like to secure uh, Eastern, Eastern Ukraine, Donbass, and... Uh, have a, a bridge between Donbass and Crimea and so on. Apparently, it is not the case. Uh, apparently, he wants really to, to replace the elected democratic authorities in Ukraine to, to, to have uh, Ukraine under his control. Beyond Ukraine, we can only interpret or try to understand what he said in the speeches he made, uh, the two speeches he made uh, at the beginning of last, the last week when he first announced he, he made a long speech ending with the recognition of the two separate, so-called separatist republics. And then he, he spoke again uh, at the time when uh, I think he spoke again with the invasion of Ukraine. So you can try to, to, to understand what's behind this, but this is indeed uh, what we can call a, a revisionist vision of uh, of the history of Europe. For this reason, we also, again, underlying that NATO remains a defensive alliance. We have taken quite a number of steps. We had a summit of the Atlantic Alliance, as you know, of NATO, and France has participated to this. We have taken a number of uh, uh, very concrete decisions to reassure our allies who are uh, members of NATO and members of the European Union, by the way, also, and who are on the on the border and on the eastern flank of NATO. For instance, we have decided to send troops to Romania, as far as France is concerned. We have reinforced our military presence in Estonia, and we have taken a, a number of other measures in the co- framework of the military instruments of NATO. And we will continue, of course, to monitor the situation because 
for historical geographical reasons, we fully understand that countries like Romania, Poland, or the Baltic republics, uh, or even EU member states which are who are not in the in NATO, like Finland or Sweden feel really exposed uh, to, to this. So whatever the goals are on his side, we took already the decisions we had to take and we are monitoring very closely the situation to be able to, to continue to adapt our posture. It, it would seem, Ambassador, that the countries who are not currently members of NATO or the EU likely view themselves as most vulnerable. Moldova comes to mind. We know that there's consideration now of, of expedited EU membership potentially. There there's, doesn't seem to be a reevaluation of their neutrality view on NATO at this point. But we have seen other countries, Kosovo, Finland, Sweden, considering uh, expedited requests for NATO membership. This is prompting threats, of course, from Vladimir Putin. Where does France stand uh, on this idea of enlarging NATO at this moment, enlarging the EU? You have different situations. Uh, the Western Balkans is a situation where we have recognized that those countries should become members of the European Union, but we have different criteria to, for, to ensure the, that the process of enlargement leads to good results. Maybe you have not noticed this, but our president called in the last days the president of Serbia, Alexander Vucic, to discuss what will happen in the next, uh, in the next months. Because we will have indeed to re review our vision of the uh, of Europe. What has been happening since the beginning of the invasion of an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia is, as our president said, a turning point in our history. As I said, you will see meetings of European leaders called to take also historical decisions. You have seen in Germany, in Sweden, turning points in their national decisions. So the Western Balkans is in a different situation uh, compared with Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine. But the Western Balkans are the first point. A second, a second situation is the situation of the countries of the EU which are not members of NATO. They are already in the EU, and it is, they have been for a long time, Finland and Sweden since the middle of the 1990s, but they are neutral. And Austria also, but Austria is less uh, geographically not that close, like Finland and Sweden. And here in those countries, we see a debate about, they are already in the EU, but we see a debate about NATO. I don't know where this debate will be going to, but it's normal, it's natural that the, these countries, uh, now the populations uh, see what's happening. And finally, the most exposed countries are indeed, you mentioned Moldova and Ukraine, of course, but Moldova and Georgia, because those three countries have a very close partnership with the European Union, it is called the Eastern Partnership, but more, more than the three other members of the Eastern Partnership, which are Belarus, which is now in a different situation, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, we, we, have a, we, have a, we have like a Hebrew-Yiddish phrase that we use, by the way, in Talmudic study called Lahavdil. It would take a while to explain this, but basically it's something that's like something but completely different. So Belarus, we would say Lahavdil Belarus uh, in, in that, yeah, in that well, moment. Yeah. Belarus is in our in listeners another, will get the joke. Yes, <laughs> but uh, the the issue now is it is not a coincidence that the three countries, starting with Ukraine, which is in a very specific situation, expedited their requests to become members of the European Union. Our president has talked to uh, Georgia and Moldova quite a lot recently. The president of Georgia was in Paris in the last days. You've seen that uh, Secretary Blinken was in Moldova, and uh, our president talked also with uh, 
President Maya Sandu of Moldova. We, we, we are looking also uh, uh, really at how we can help those countries, which, which feels most ex- exposed, all the more than in Transnistria, in Abkhazia, or Southern Ossetia, the Russians have already, are already there, through, both in Moldova and in, in Georgia, through what they call, we call frozen conflicts from the previous developments. So we, we are really keen to, to keep a, a close, a close con- touch, to have a, a close dialogue with those countries and to, to help them. Ambassador, just shifting gears a little bit, uh, looking at the future of Lebanon, France obviously has strong historical ties, uh, equity still in Lebanon. We've seen President Macron go to Beirut uh, in recent months, really be trying to lead an effort for restructuring of the Lebanese government, the Lebanese economy that would qualify them for an IMF uh, bailout. But of course, we struggle with the fact that Hezbollah in the United States, a, a designated foreign terrorist organization, increasingly calls in Europe for, for the EU and for individual countries uh, to recognize Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organization, has effective control of, of that government. What do you see as the future of Lebanon right now, sort of a forgotten tragedy that, that continues to spiral? You're right, we must not forget this tragedy, which has been uh, amplified by the explosion in the port of Beirut. And our president came immediately after to Beirut because uh, Lebanon is also so close to us. And uh, we, I think we are also close to Lebanon. So we have been fighting for the Lebanese political class to, to react and to answer the requests of the Lebanese population. I cannot say that we've been as successful as we hoped to be, frankly. But we think that the, the, the right thing, especially in, in view of what you said about Hezbollah, is not to leave Lebanon to let them fall. We must fight. We must continue, even if it is frustrating for this country to, to find a rebound and so to maintain the, the level of our demands in terms of reforms, of the fight against corruption and uh, the structural reforms. This is why we wanted Lebanon to have a plaster government, but it is also why we discussed so closely with uh, some regional partners. And as you, you might have seen, it was one of the main topics raised during the visits my president made to the region. I mentioned this visit beginning of uh, December, especially with Saudi Arabia, to to work with uh, with those countries Again, there can be a sort of fatigue about uh, the fact that it does things don't move uh, sufficiently uh, as we would like them to move in even in terms of reforms. But we think we have to reinvest with our own requests, with the uh, which which we think are the ones the Lebanese people also uh, are waiting. Are expecting to be fulfilled, but respecting the sovereignty of this country, the unity, the unique model of coexistence between the Sunni, Shia, and Christian communities, and helping the, this country to rebound, to keep this model, which is absolutely essential in the Middle East and uh, in the Mediterranean civilization. Ambassador, I know you're short. Uh, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. A lot of ink spilled about fear of the Jewish community in France and the rise of anti-Semitism. Should American Jews be worried about the fate of the Jewish community in France? Well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Jared, for this question. It's a really important question for our authorities. 
I think you see also in the United States uh, the rise of this anti-Semitism, even with violent uh, events. We have uh, really condemned and we have been uh, in close thoughts with uh, with the Jewish communities in, in Texas and in, in other parts of your country recently. And indeed, also in Europe, we see this... Uh, extremism, radicalism, which is associated with a rise in certain corners of the anti-Semitism. We have been fighting and will continue to fight without any hesitation against this, uh, any form of anti-Semitism. The Jewish community in France is uh, not only an integral part of our identity, of the French identity, but it's also the most important Jewish community in Europe and one of the most important in the world. It's absolutely essential for us to keep the cohesion of our society and to keep, for this, we, we need to keep this community safe. So the first priority is the protection of this, these compatriots and the places where, where they go to school or to worship. But the second priority is very much about prosecution, of course. The third part is education. It's absolutely essential. We have developed a lot of new programs, both at the level of the government, but also at the, at, in the civil society, which we support. And we, every year, every year we, we monitor this. There is one point which is more and more important, which is a fight against anti-Semitism, hatred on Internet. And here we need also the help of the United States. We, we have launched a, a series of initiatives because, mo of course, most of these messages now of, of anti-Semitism and messages of hatred go through Internet, through the social media. And we need to fight with the social media, with the tech platforms, decisively to, to remove these messages, to delete them, and also to fight against those who are circulating those. This is important, and for this we need the help of the United States and also of uh, the international community, but also of the business and the tech platforms and of you of the civil society. So we have done progress because this administration, uh, Biden administration, has decided to rejoin the Christchurch call for action, which is precisely against this. And by the way, the Christchurch call, it means fight against radicalism and extremism and terrorism Whatever the target is, because uh, the Christchurch attack was against Muslims in, in New Zealand, as you know. But it's for us a very important instrument to fight against terrorism and in particular to fight against hatred and uh, anti-Semitism. So we want to, to do this more efficiently and it is now one of our priorities. But we will not have the least complacency for any kind of uh, anti-Semitism. And, and if you follow the statements of our government, of our president, he made, he has been giving since he was elected or every year at the CRIF, CRIF evenings, in, you know, the annual meetings of the, this uh, very important institution uh, of the Jewish community. We, we are really adding every year new, new instruments we're adding you uh, in our policies uh, in the different fields I mentioned. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we leave you with just one lightning round question, which is, have you had the kosher falafel in La Marais? The falafel, I, I, I love falafel, but where should I get them? It was in the Pletzel, in the Jewish Quarter in, 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 in Paris. Yes. Have you yes. had that falafel? It's the one with the huge line down the block and all that. I, I had them one time visiting the Marais, 
but uh, a long time ago, <laughs> I don't know whether it is the same place, but uh, I had some very good experiences in Le Marais. Is it is it uh, some place something you know breaks by personal experience? I, I have been there. Uh, I was more stunned by the line than the falafel, but uh, <laughs> but 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 still, I, I celebrate it, and I hope we protect the falafel as well. So that that's all, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you most for your, for your time. Thank you for joining us here on Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ambassador. Thank you so much. Jared, wonderful to have the ambassador with us. A really incredible perspective on all these issues. We may not agree or I may not agree with him on on some of these issues. Uh, I understand he can't speak completely openly. There are ongoing negotiations, certainly in Vienna. He's not able to prejudge uh, the French position on those at this time. But good to have a perspective. And I think uh, that last point on Jewish safety, security in France is an important one. I'm glad you raised it. Absolutely. You know, we have to keep raising that point and keep talking about it wherever it pops its head up. And only then are we going to have true safety and security for the Jewish community the world over. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.